I didn't know anyone. And, and the thing that was um, challenging was that I'm going through non-trail communities. So I don't look like a long-distance backpacker to them. They have what they see as a stranger that looks out of place, you know. Yeah, I had I had guns pulled on me. I was shot at. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. I'm your host, Shanti, and that was Rue McKenrick, a professional backpacker, triple crowner, and the originator and architect of a massive project that we're going to talk about today, the American Perimeter Trail. What the heck's the American Perimeter Trail, you might be asking? Well, the American Perimeter Trail, or APT, is a 12,000-mile, 12,000-mile hiking loop that circumnavigates the entire continental United States. Now, it's not a completely independent trail. In some sections, it follows parts of existing trails, like the Pacific Crest Trail out west, the Appalachian Trail out east, and the North Country Trail in the north. In other sections, though, the route follows complete cross-country off-trail areas, and in other areas, it's a completely undefined route where a map compass, and GPS is required to navigate safely through. But ever since the summer of 2019, Rue has been doing the first official scout and hike of the APT. He set off from Bend, Oregon, heading southward around the country in a counterclockwise direction. And today, he's going to be talking with us from Michigan, because remember, he's actually in the midst of still completing this hike. So because of all of this, we're going to be talking about a ton of great stuff with Rue today. We're going to talk about Rue's background and what motivates him to do long-distance backpacking. We're going to talk about how he came up with the idea of the APT, including what the mission and vision of the APT is. And then, of course, we're going to talk about a ton of the adventures that he's been having over the course of his scout and hike of the APT. This is going to include telling stories of times he was shot at while trying to navigate through off-trail areas in the South, his need to use both hard skills in the backcountry and interpersonal skills while hiking through areas and towns that aren't exactly close to any major trails, and let's be honest, probably aren't that familiar with long-distance hikers. And of course, we're going to talk about the remaining plans that Rue has for completing the trail, all the help he's received so far, and all the ways you can help with the completion of the trail if you feel like chipping in and contributing to the creation and completion of a 12,000-mile loop around this amazingly beautiful country. So we have a great story to get into today with a great individual. But first, before we do that, we need to talk real quick about how you can safely and successfully navigate your way through the backcountry on your next adventure, whether it's a short camping trip, an overlanding trip, or a through hike that's thousands of miles. To do that, you're going to need the best backcountry navigation app out there to help you find your way. In other words, you're going to want to check out Gaia GPS. Gaia GPS gives you access to all the best backcountry maps you need, including National Geographic Trails Illustrated, USGS topo maps, satellite imagery, weather forecasting layers, fire reports, and even integration with Apple CarPlay. And another piece of good news? Right now, Gaia GPS is offering up to a 50% discount on memberships to podcast listeners. Visit GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S dot com slash podcast. Or visit our show notes on our blog to snag this great deal. And now, without any further ado, let's have a chat with Rue McKenrick. Thanks for being on the show, Rue. We're glad you're here. Yeah, hi, Shanti. Thanks for having me. It's pretty clear that you are, putting it lightly, a well-seasoned traveler who has thousands upon thousands of miles of hiking under your shoes. And you're also in the midst of creating this epic American Perimeter Trail. But 
before we dive deep into that, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So how did Rue McKenrick first get into traveling and exploring the wilderness? Yeah, well, as far as backpacking, I mean, my my initial experiences with that was the European style of backpacking, which is commonly you have a backpack and you have some gear with you, but you primarily use trains and um, stay at hostels and uh, do some camping. It's kind of 50-50. So, I mean, I think that was my first introduction of spending a couple summers uh, living in Western Europe. But I had always uh, spent a lot of time in the forest. I grew up right off of the Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania. And so I had always spent a lot of time up there. And I found that I spent a lot of time. I didn't mind being out there by myself. Um, And... I don't think that's entirely unique, but I did realize, like, as a young man, that uh, that that was a little different from other people. I didn't mind night hiking by myself. I wasn't really afraid of the dark. And as a very young man, uh, I had gotten lost at summer camp, <laughs> at, at church camp. And so that was probably one of my first nights out by myself. Um, and uh, I just uh, remember at the time... Other people, you know, obviously they were upset I was missing, but I guess they kind of figured if there was a kid that needed to go missing, like, at least it was good that it was me. So, um, so that was probably like, you know, that could have gone one of two ways. That could have been a traumatic experience where I decided I was never going to step a foot into the woods or into the wilderness again, or it was a confidence building. And I guess it was the, the former. So, or the latter, rather. Interesting. So you got your start specifically in Europe, but you really hadn't been doing any backpacking uh, in the United States prior to that, even though you grew up in Pennsylvania? That's right. Just primarily hiking and, like I said, some canoe trips. But I think I got to be about 20 years old and realized that I had been to several other countries and got to see other cultures and have that experience and realized that I had not seen my own country at all. And that's what really sparked me off. You know, it's just like, uh, it's just, it's incredible here that we have all these um, public lands and these long trails. So at that point in time, I was like, I'm not going to do any international hiking or international traveling uh, until I get to see my homeland. Where in Pennsylvania where were you originally from? Was it close to the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, it's Fayetteville. So that's actually, the trail goes right through it at Caledonia State Park. Was that your first uh, long distance through hike, the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, I mean, it it was, uh, yeah, it was most certainly my first long distance hike, anything like that. Um, I mean, I've backpacked before that. I'd spent time on the Appalachian Trail. Um, a lot of that time I spent in Georgia uh, and in the Southeast because that was my home at the time. and. Uh, yeah, so I had done some backpacking, but that was the first uh, long-distance hike. So then, what was, I guess, the motivation for you to begin doing the long-distance hiking? You had done your travels in Europe. Um, you had spent your time going out on shorter trips, like canoe trips, and then your fun experience where you got lost uh, in the woods at night with your church group. Um, what was the motivation for you to keep pushing for longer-distance hiking that ultimately led to the Appalachian Trail and the Triple Crown? 
You know, I, I want to be genuine here, and um, I think I could give you different reasons, but honestly, it's something that just kind of came into my mind. I had always had such an appreciation for environmental education and conservation and had worked with a couple different organizations. I worked for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy at one point in time, and um I can't I can't point to one thing. It's almost like, you know, Edward Abbey said, uh, what is the truth? And uh, he said, I don't know. And I'm sorry I brought it up. And so uh, very generically, it was just um, after having some experiences backpacking, it was the people and the places and the open spaces and just um, the adventure of it, really. And the appeal of the backpacking was really to, um, I didn't realize that there was going to be such a probably like social element to it, but um, it was the being in nature piece of it that really inspired me and intrigued me. I think something that motivates me about hiking and one of the reasons I did the Appalachian Trail last year is that you get the chance to learn a little bit more about yourself when you're out there. It kind of gives you a peaceful chance to check in with yourself and maybe get a little more clarity out of what you want in life. So I'm curious to know, as you were going through the Appalachian Trail and ultimately built into the Triple Crown, what did what did you learn about yourself when you were doing the Triple Crown? Like, would you say it changed you at all or the way you viewed life? I think with the Appalachian Trail, I I do remember being a little disgruntled uh, before I started. Um, a little, a, a little, just kind of, you know, maybe there was some escapism there. I just didn't want to really be a part of society for a couple months. I uh, kind of wanted to get away. I, I, there were some, uh, there were many things going on in the world at that point in time, and um, I don't. I think I had, I think I had begun to have like a negative perspective on people and society and so one thing i would say is after the appalachian trail um i thought that i would have more of a connection with myself or more of a connection with nature those things happen but also i had uh my faith in humanity was redeemed uh through the process of going through that trail and um then i would say there's many different elements. So then there were times that I just wanted to challenge myself. Uh, so those things, um, like for instance, the Connell Divide Trail, you know, some of that was I wanted to see it and some of it was I wanted to challenge myself in another way. Um, and so I guess, like, have I changed? Hmm. Uh, I've changed in the sense that I have a lot more experience under my belt. Um, and I guess through the process of traveling, it's allowed me, I guess, to become maybe slightly more empathetic towards other people. I always was, but maybe in a more realistic way um, than I was before. It's it's hard for me to pinpoint. Developing more empathy, developing more of a having your faith restored in people. Um, did this serve as a motivation for you? Um, what, for what you were doing in between the times that you were knocking out the other triple crown trails? Um, because you worked for outward bound for a while, right? 
Yeah, I I pretty much during all that time worked for a couple different nonprofits. And what I realized uh, through that process was just that um, for me, it was it has been more important that there's some continuity to my life. And so I realized that my work was also part of my lifestyle. And that's not going to work for everyone. Um, but what I found is for me that uh, spending that amount of time and effort and like everyone does with their job or with their work or with their career, that there was going to have to be, it was going to have to be in line somewhat with a personal mission, like a personal mission statement. And so, yeah, I worked for Outward Bound. Um, I worked for several nonprofits that had environmental ed centers uh, or outdoor rec centers. And it's things were yeah things felt pretty much in alignment so i would say that to the best of my ability i lived the trail life when i wasn't on trail and what do i mean by that i mean i pretty much kind of live more of a leave no trace life even when i'm in the front country so um you know i haven't driven a car in 10 years um i Typically, ten years without a car. Yeah, I, I bike commute. Nice. Yeah, and you know, I like I. I probably have never even said that to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's not something I wear on my sleeve that I'm proud of. It's just kind of the way things have been. And during that time of uh, when I was younger, I hardly ever drove. Then I didn't. I didn't really have a. Didn't have a need to, and so. Um, I just have kind of had a smaller footprint in that way, but also some of that has just even been social media or being really active and kind of out there with my own thoughts or ideas or in social situations. So this trip has really given me an opportunity to open up in those ways and open up parts of me to other people that I didn't know that I could do that. You've gone over the course of the years, uh, the Triple Crown. 2003, you did the Appalachian Trail. Um, when did you do the CDT and the PCT? Yeah, I did the PCT in 2005. And I guess in between a JMT hike and a long trail hike, um, uh, a North, another North Cascades hike like in between these hikes. And then I did this CDT in 2007. Um, and at that point in time, my life looked like it was taking a direction that was maybe a little bit more domestic. Um, in the sense I wouldn't be traveling as much and I'd probably settle down in one spot. And um, I thought that's the way life was going. I thought I was going to get married, you know, uh, possibly have family, these sorts of things. I got to a, a place in my life where I just wasn't sure what the next step was. And maybe I thought that long distance backpacking for me wasn't going to be, um, it, it wasn't going to be practical to do that because I thought I would have other responsibilities and uh, other obligations. And that just, that's what I thought was happening. And then it just really never came to fruition. So then I was like, well, I guess I'm 
back into the backpacking. <laughs> yeah, and this is what yeah. I wonder because it's like the way you're telling this story, I'm like, well, wait a minute. How are we getting towards the main crux of, you know, what you have become so popular for in the hiking community, which is the American Perimeter Trail, which is the ultimate long distance backpacking experience. So how did you get then from this point of finishing the Triple Crown and now it's OK, you know, it's time to settle in, have a domestic life to I'm going to go set off and scout and create the American Perimeter Trail. How does that happen, point A to point B? Maybe some of the initial concepts, like I can even remember of being towards the end of the Continental Divide Trail. And I remember one day just having this like existential, I don't want to call it existential crisis, but existential um, like uh, introspection. And I thought to myself, what am I doing out here? And I had... Like I said, I'd always done a lot of volunteering and service work and work for nonprofits. And I just, it just felt kind of empty, like very self serving. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should treat ourselves, we should challenge ourselves. Um, but I know towards the end of the trip, I felt that. And it made me wonder if I would ever go on a long trip again or if it would feel kind of empty to me. So, it was sometime after that that I, I guess I was looking at some maps and thinking about what would be another long hike that I would do. And I just started considering like, well, why don't, you know, I do want to go see other places. Um, but seeing this country was so important that I thought, well, I guess I'll just try to go see most of the rest of it and just do a loop around the United States. I put it on the I put it on the back burner um, many times, and then at some point in time it matured in my mind, and it was like, well, this wouldn't just be a through hike. This would be the beginning, the first step in a process in creating uh, a corridor, a conservation corridor and which everyone would be able to enjoy and we'll get a trail on the ground. And the first process or first step in the process would be me going out and scouting that. But I put it on the back burner a couple of times and it just got to the point where I made a decision because there's some suffering I think that goes on with um, manifesting a dream in your mind and not being able to put it into action. And so yeah, so I so I was like, you know, I'm not going to suffer over this. I will either pack this up and never think about it again. And I mean, that's absolute. I don't mean never think about it again, but I'll never consider doing it again. Or I'll just do it. It's got it's going to need to be one or the other because it's this kind of sitting on the fence isn't working. It sounds like it was kind of a now or never reckoning moment for you. I think so. And as I get old, as I get older, you know, I, you know, the, the time is never right. So you either just decide you're going, I mean, I'm speaking to myself as I speak to you. I'm not telling other people what to do, but you either, um, for me, you know, I decide to do something or I let it go. Yeah. And so we get what is the start of the American perimeter trail. So since you're now the scout, you're the creator. You're the original hiker of this American Perimeter Trail. I guess I'd love to hear it directly from you. 
What exactly is the American Perimeter Trail? Yeah, the American Perimeter Trail at this point in time is primarily a concept, but the American Perimeter Trail project is not. I mean, it's very much uh, an action. And so the goal of that is to create a protected corridor of land and uh, natural resources that will be available for recreational use. And by doing that, it's roughly tracing the perimeter of the contiguous United States. And it's the, you know, one of its goals is conservation through recreation. And this is something that I learned while working with the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is that um, I once was speaking with a director and had mentioned about them being a recreation uh, organization. And I was quickly corrected that they are, in fact, a conservation organization. And one way that they encourage conservation is through recreation. And so that's what I hope to do with the American Perimeter Trail. So even if you don't care about conservation, maybe you care about hiking um, or trail running or what, whatever you know your, your poison is. So, um, and the, the greater, I mean, I look at these things in a very figurative way. Backpacking, I look at as more of an art than a sport. What is that you see in the hiking and backpacking that makes it an artful element? So to describe art is impossible. So um, art is something that when you see it and it's artful, there is something in, in our humanity that just speaks to that. And uh, that's what I was witnessing when I was seeing other backpackers. And it was something with the movements. It was something with the uh, connections and uh, communication with other people. Um, something about the fluidity of it. Um, something about the ease of it, where you would take something that's very abrasive, like backpacking and climbing through mountains and over rocks through all kinds of weather, which is very abrasive, almost like sandpaper. But Yeah, very technical. Yeah, it's very technical. And it, like I said, very abrasive. It's very abrasive to the body. I mean, my legs are yeah. cut up even as we speak. <laughs> but but it's so abrasive that what I guess I found through backpacking that it was um, a lot like sandpaper in the sense that you take something very rough, uh, like a piece of sandpaper, and you rub it against wood. And instead of the wood getting rough, it actually smooths out. And so the trail um, has had that process. It has done that to me. So I don't think I've become a more rugged, rough, or tougher person as a result of this. Yeah, I mean, I have some grit because I have to at times. But it's smoothed out a lot of my edges, to be honest with you. That is an interesting analogy mm. because we think about all the time about like this person has done this amazing hike or this person has done this amazing physical accomplishment. And I think it's we think, wow, this person has become so tough. You know, they're such a badass. That's that's an angle I've never heard before, but I really like it that it actually smooths out the rough edges. Um, call it the sandpaper. And I guess that makes me the the piece of wood. <laughs> <laughs> That's so clever. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm actually going to, I'm going to remember that. That's a good okay. one. Okay. Yeah. 
So in the American Perimeter Trail, is it strictly a unique trail like it's fall or is it connecting like different trails around the country? Yeah, it's connecting different trails. And I think in some places it will be its own unique trail. There is no finished product to this. And so I know often like people have looked at something I've drawn on a map and said, oh, well, that doesn't make sense or you didn't go that way or whatever it is. It's because it's still a concept. So there will be areas like, for instance, the Southwest, uh, parts of Arizona, parts of California, parts of New Mexico that um, will need to have trail put on the ground that will specifically be the American Perimeter Trail. There are other areas where it uses all kinds of different corridors or easements. Um, these could be rails to trails. They could be backpacking trails. They could be two tracks. They could be snowmobile trails. Um, they could be a non-existing trail because, I mean, I have done bushwhacking during this trip as well. So it primarily just relies on wherever we can find a piece of public land and uh, an area where a trail could go in. So some of it will be exclusively American Perimeter Trail. And then hopefully, uh, you know, I've talked with a couple trail associations and they'll want to partner and then it would be um a shared corridor or a shared footbed yeah have you had luck like talking with the u.s forest service or blm as well to coordinate yeah i mean it's just there's a lot of interest there and also with some trail clubs that i've spoke with there's a lot of interest but it's such a huge project and i really can't do that piece of it right now um that's i mean i can start those relationships uh which i have but as far as a follow through, I really need to be um, not not backpacking every day <laughs> in order to do that. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, you can't just walk through an area and say, "All right, well, this is the coming the established trail area, and it must be recognized as such." <laughs> there's yeah, there's a lot I, more surrounding that. Yeah, I mean the the Appalachian Trail uh, Conservancy was initially the Appalachian Trail Conference, and that was because of a conference that was called for two days where people met and, uh, you know, started discussing that. But the trail, I mean, they came up with the, the notion in 1921. And it wasn't complete till 1937, but that's not necessarily true. It's never complete. I mean, yeah. that changes mileages every year. Um, yeah. It gets rerouted every year. Um, when Earl Schaefer hiked that trail, it didn't look anything like what it looks like today. Uh, Earl Schaefer, Earl Schaefer, you know this, but Earl Schaefer being the first through hiker of the Appalachian Trail in 1948. So, I mean, he would have, um, he would have used a lot of different, like there would, he would have been on a lot of uh, fire roads. Um, so at that point in time, like the, the trail wouldn't have been in place everywhere. There would have been a lot of areas where you just had to walk roads or paved roads. And, and I always thought that would be really interesting to kind of have that solitary experience and uh, kind of be on the front edge of something unique like that with no other backpackers and kind of like connecting this to here and, and uh, seeing how that works. And I I'll tell you what, Shanti, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <laughs> because you're getting that wish firsthand. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> so when you started this hike, did you start from the East Coast and like go up the Appalachian Trail? Um, or did you start from a different location? No, I started from my home in Bend, Oregon. 
And the Pacific Crest Trail runs just outside of town from Bend, Oregon. I basically walked from Bend up into the Three Sisters Wilderness um, on trail. There's trails that go up there and then caught the Pacific Crest Trail and started heading south. So before you started heading out, um, I'm curious to know how much like pre-sketching, pre-planning in the war room were you doing? Were you looking like, okay, I'm going to go down the Pacific Crest Trail like to this point, and then I'm going to follow these trails east or find this way? Like, How much planning and sketching out of the route was there before you headed out? I was like kind of concerned you were going to ask that. <laughs> okay, um, so I guess I'm going to tell on myself here. Um, before I started, I had to figure out how to start funding it. And so I worked with a nonprofit and they created a website, uh, the website that exists currently, so um, that I could start doing some fundraising and letting people know, uh, you know, something about what was going to be taking place over the next year or so. And, uh, I, the, um, you know, the person who was creating the website called me one day and was like, I need to put up this map and there needs to be a route on this map. And I think I, I mean, I know I sketched something on a napkin, took a screenshot and sent it to her. <laughs> um, I'm serious. And, and if you look at the, the first map, like the first draft, it's obvious, like, it's pretty clear because there's all these like really straight lines. <laughs> like, like it looks like a highway. It doesn't look like a trail. It just well, we all know like trails straight. going completely straight lines. Oh yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you look at the first one and then I remember getting feedback about that, people were like, wait, this doesn't even make any sense. And that was because the map was supposed to just be more of a concept, not uh, exactly what I was going to be hiking. So I always knew that it was going to be, uh, a process. I made a lot of decisions during this trip, um, day to day, week to week. Uh, if you speak with Layla Grace, the coordinator of the APT project, um, you'll know this because she never knows where my mail drops are usually going from week to week. And yeah, it's that tight. It's that tight. So, um, and I made decisions like I did make some decisions during this trip that were for me. And for my travels or for my mental health. And then I made decisions that I didn't want to make, um, but they were based on what was going to be best for the uh, long-term health and development of the project. So I, you know, I don't like to give people advice. I, I think most people can kind of go and have their own experiences and figure it out on their own. But I tend to be a person who doesn't do, um, I, I rarely do any planning. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not prepared. Uh, I would, I put more of an emphasis on preparation than I do planning. So for instance, like my preparation was the triple crown. Okay. Uh, for, for the APT, the triple crown was my, and other backpacking trips that I went on. But um, I'm just saying that, like, generally, that was my preparation. And then before I went on the trail, my preparation was to make sure that my body was strong and healthy and that I was hiking, you know, eight miles a day or eight uh, hours a day every day for a couple of months before I left. So that preparation piece has served me way better than just 
planning everything out because it would have been a big joke. It's it's too long of a trek. I mean, there's been so many things that have come up during the course of this trip that if I would have planned it all out and tried to stick to it, I would have driven myself crazy because I would have I would have just always not been meeting my own expectations. Yeah. And I, I understand where you're coming from with this point about planning and preparation. Like it's it's important to essentially be prepared all the time. Like you need to have what you need to be able to survive in the back country. But at the same time, like planning is different from preparation in that, especially if you're setting your own course or you're going to be doing backcountry navigation, in some ways you have to plan for the unexpected. And then you can't follow the exact plan if if, if that's the way I'm understanding it. I guess so, but I think maybe the experience informs the unexpected, like in the sense that that's happened to you so many times over the years, the unexpected has come up that you're already ready for that. Uh, You've already been through that. And so you don't need to um, think of every scenario. You're already aware that every scenario is going to happen. It already is. So you don't have to plan for like, you know, the worst case scenario or the best case scenario. Just know they're all going to be happening probably at the same time. So, um, and I, I just, and I, yeah, when I say about the planning thing, some people really get on me about it, but I didn't buy any gear. I just had old, uh, used gear that I've had over the years. So I didn't have to buy any gear. Um, I didn't really have to do anything. I mean, I just had to make sure my body was in shape. Um, I started on the Pacific Crest Trail. I mean, I knew what I was doing there, like for the most part. Um, so, and I, I've, I've had other trips like this. <laughs> and I know people think that it's wacky or irresponsible, but I just kind of, I just focus more on the preparation piece. I've seen people who have spent a lot of time planning and then had a trip fizzle, fizzle out very quickly because the preparation wasn't up to par, but the planning was perfect. So you have this step at the beginning where you're following the Pacific Crest Trail down for a while. Um, Did you go all the way down to Campo and then turn east, or did you cut off at an earlier point to start working your way towards like Arizona and New Mexico? I basically got to the southern end of the Sierras and was heading, heading towards Campo. And I have, I don't know until, I mean, to this day, I have no idea why, but I turned a little bit east and started heading back up towards Death Valley. And that was never something that I considered I was even going to do. I thought that I was going to go to maybe not the whole way to Campo because I didn't think that was necessary. And also, I didn't want to follow the border um, that close. I wanted to be a little bit away from it. If I was going to be following it for a thousand miles, you know, across um, California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. So, um, I, like I said, I went a little east and then I turned around and went straight north back up to Nevada and crossed um, Death Valley and then the Hoover Dam and then over to the Grand Canyon. And yeah, that wasn't, I never thought that it hadn't crossed my mind. It was just, I was walking down there and I just said, this is what I want to go do. So that's what I did. So I just turned, I just turned the ship around and went and did it. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Wow. And going through Death Valley too, it's like, all right, I'm going to choose the hot, dry area. Like did, did you have issues with water and food specifically going through that area? Yeah. I actually have had several people ask me to publish or like at least make public that route. 
and I've chosen not to. Um, there's like there's a certain way to do it, but um, I it's it's too dangerous. I would feel horrible if someone looked at my route and decided they wanted to to follow that and something would happen to them. Is it a concern of the land that you're going through? Like, was it all public land or was it anything through private property? Or is it just a case of, you know, you were going through a very gnarly area where there's like no water? It's just the water issue. Yeah, it's just the heat. It's just the heat in the water. There's plenty of uh, public land there to traverse. Um, there's plenty of places to explore there. There's no long trails through there. And I think the park service probably did that on purpose. They only want people. I, I think they probably only want people like maybe a quarter mile away from their car. You know, they, there's signs there warning at all the trailheads to stay on the trail and not to go too far and, um, be, you know, don't linger, I guess is what I should say. So yeah, as far as the death Valley section goes, I, I don't know if that's going to be part of the APT or not, but like I said, I haven't made my route public because it's just, it, it, it's, it's way too dangerous. It was too dangerous for me. And I didn't know I had some situations that came up that I wasn't expecting that were around supplies and water. Oh, you boy, boy, you need to tell me one of this. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'll give you one. Uh, so, so I guess there's like several ghost towns in Death Valley National Park. And um, I hiked to one and I was told that there would be um, some supplies there and that there would be water as well. And when I got there, there was neither one of those and there weren't any people. And um, there was like a, gentleman that had been living out there for years and he's like yeah the water's broken <laughs> i was like oh no and i was like can i hike up this mountain here and find like a spring or something coming out he's like no and i was like okay and there's no supplies or anything he's like no and oh, so man. it turned into and he i don't even know that he had any way of getting out of there if someone was going to bring stuff into him in a couple of days but um but yeah, so I was just kind of like, all right, I guess I'm marching on and I'll just figure this out. And it, So that was one situation where, you know, if you're really counting on especially water <laughs> and it's not there and it's going to be a long time until you get some, it's it becomes very quickly a very dangerous situation. So that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. When you were going through these areas, um, what were you using to help yourself navigate? Uh, just map and compass? Yeah, I just use map and compass. And, you know, recently, like I've been using uh, Gaia GPS. Um, but during pretty much uh, most of this trip has just uh, been map and compass. I still have all the paper maps of different, just all sorts of stuff like snowmobile trails and just everything that I can find. <laughs> and then and I just kind of piece, piece it together. Yeah. And we do appreciate the guy reference, but um, we did talk <laughs> about this, but here's the other thing. Like, you know, it, it's nice to have a phone app. It's nice to have something like that. But, you know, at the same time, a phone, a paper map uh, run, doesn't run out of batteries and isn't ruined if you drop it in a stream or anything like that. 
And in one of our earlier episodes, we uh, talked a lot about this specifically with Andrew Skirka. Um, but I want your input as well, since you were using your map and compass a lot. Um, what do you think are the key things a person should know about using a map and compass before they head out into the wilderness or off trail? Like, what is a key thing? What are some key things a person should know? You know, we have this thing that we say, like, you just try to stay found um, instead of I'm, you know, I'm lost. It's more a process of staying found. I would say, like, just know how to read a topographical map. Um, that's going to take practice because even if you know how to read one, it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily be able to transfer that to a actual physical three-dimensional geological land shape or landform. So, so that takes experience. And over time, I think what I found is that when I look at a map, I see the, I don't see a two-dimensional map like when i look at one i see a three-dimensional um landscape on the piece of paper and that takes a lot of time and practice have you found this is something that uh i would actually do ahead of time if i was looking at a map i like to sketch out elevation profiles do you find that helps out at all like placing the map down and then like actually practicing like going uh, showing exactly what your range is going to be by drawing it out on a sheet of paper i like obsess over elevation profiles whenever i'm hiking yeah, I mean, I think that depends on the person. It's something that I do um, from time to time. I will sketch out elevation profiles, and I would say that's a really good skill to have, especially if, like, I primarily just work off of maps, not off of guides. So I don't know where camping is. I don't know where water is. Like, I don't know what the elevation change and all that stuff is going to be unless, and, like, I don't have town guides. Um, I, you know, I wing a lot of it. So. Um, the, the, yeah, so I would say, yeah, that's a good skill to have. I, I don't know, Shanti, I've been out here a long time. So I kind <laughs> of just, I know it's just going to happen. And um, and uh, surprises aren't always the worst thing in life. So it's true. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. Especially if, yeah, if you're willing to embrace uh, surprises possibly coming your way. Yeah. So with this hiking, um, you know, with the time that you're navigating, would you say you've, from where you started to where you are now on the trail, um, would you say you've spent the majority of that time off trail, like completely going off trail navigation, or are you saying like probably a balance between that and designated hiking trails? Um, I'd probably, hmm, I'd probably say more off trail, I'm guessing more cross-country routes in the southwest and what i mean by cross-country is that there's no trail but there's public land so i'm crossing the land but there isn't a trail there so i'm just navigating as i go and just like you watch your feet a lot so that you don't kick cactus um yeah (laughs) yeah i've never watched my feet so much before but um so you do a lot of that but uh definitely the southwest was a lot of cross country and then uh, you have areas like for instance texas and you know the in arizona 80 percent of the land is public um new mexico something like 50 or 60 percent of it is public land and texas uh 1.2 percent of that entire landmass is public this is the thing that I really am curious about. Um, when I'm looking at the map of where you've gone eastward, um, public land just gets more and more sparse the further east you go. And then when you're across the Mississippi, like 
it essentially doesn't exist. So like, yeah, I was looking Texas eastward. How were you navigating through those areas when there wasn't public land or national forest to go through? I mean, were you going strictly through private property? I was, you know, I was making daily decisions as that to like whatever I could find. And some of that was local information. And sometimes it burned me and sometimes it was good. Like, you know, someone would tell me, um, you, I think you could use this track or something like that. And then it wasn't even really there or they weren't sure. So, um, I think like, you know, as far as the future for the APT, I have some ideas about how to address this, but really, uh, yeah, some of those areas, it was just like find public roads and try to find as much dirt as possible. And what I mean by that is like a dirt track instead of a paved road. Um, I didn't camp in places that were posted. So, I mean, I asked for permission to camp and stuff when I could. Um, if I wasn't sure, maybe I would go to a church and uh, camp on their lawn or something. It, I, I still look back on it and just wonder how I, like, you know, I, I don't know. It wasn't really like I didn't have a specific process. It was really a day-to-day effort. And each each day and sometimes like i wouldn't even know until it was like getting to almost be nighttime and i'd be like i don't know where i'm gonna camp so what types of encounters did you have with people in these areas like who may not be used to seeing a hiker going down a dirt road um or someone who might not be on public land like what what were those encounters like it would be hard for me to quantify exactly like the positive experiences to the negative experiences and i think i I think i know what you're leading on here too like you know, were there any real surprises? And yeah, 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 just, I'm yeah. Curious, no, because again, I, I, people are inherently good. I think most yeah. people are willing to look out for each other. But I just there's this worry, like if if, for example, if I were ever to do something like that, or a friend of mine, family, anyone I knew or cared about who was going to go off and doing something like this, would they have to be worried about an encounter with somebody? I would, I would say so. I, I mean, I, I would think that. Anytime you're traveling uh, by yourself, you know, if you're on a major trail during a through hike season, um, you're probably going to have some backup, you know, Uh, you'll probably know someone at least, or maybe you will have phone service or access to the front country. But that really wasn't a lot of my experience. A lot of the time I didn't have phone service. I didn't know anyone. And and the thing that was um, challenging was that, I'm going through non-trail communities, so uh, constantly. So I don't look like a long-distance backpacker to them. They have what they see as a stranger that looks out of place, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I had I had guns pulled on me. I was shot at. Um, Holy crap! <laughs> I've had. I mean, I had a couple of interactions like that. I. I, I you know, anecdotally, I walked into a store once and a gentleman just, I didn't even have my backpack off and he, there was a gun in my face, a handgun, um, quickly. I saw him run behind the counter and I didn't know what was going on. Like I saw him run and he came running out uh, with one hand behind his back and the other one uh, with the gun in my face and he was just screaming and yelling at me. He looked insane. I mean, his, his eyes looked crazy. I, w- I was certain one of us were going to get hurt. Um, and so, you know, 
you do the best you can. I could have anticipated that. Um, and, you know, it, it was just a very tense situation. Um, he was just yelling at me, you know, like, who are you? Who are you? Um, I tried to just take a position of being nonviolent, keeping my hands out to the side so that he could see them and uh, try to answer his questions. But he just, he just seemed insane. I mean, I'm looking in his eyes and uh, then he started yelling, uh, what are you? And I didn't know how to answer that one. And he just kept yelling, what are you? And at this point in time, the hand that was behind his back, he brought out and he had a second handgun. So now I had two handguns in my face. And this guy just, you know, yelling at me. He, was, he, was, he looked terrified to me. He looked absolutely terrified. Um, and I was able to de-escalate that situation as best as I could. And um, I, I didn't do it in a very... <laughs> I didn't do it in a way that I thought would work. It, I wasn't thinking about de-escalating it. Like at that time, I obviously wanted him to put the guns down and have a conversation, but or not have a conversation, but at least just take the guns down. Um, but I ended up saying something, you know, like, I don't know. There, there was just so much noise. It was just yelling and there was so much noise in my head. And I just looked him back in the eye and I said something very vulgar to him. And for some reason it de-escalated. I don't know if it scared him or if he was like, I mean, sometimes you just have to act crazier than crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in that Philadelphia kind of understand that concept. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, like me being so rough and forward and direct with him, uh, de-escalated the situation, but it did. And it was unfortunate because that was a store in the middle of nowhere. And so I needed water and food and I ended up just leaving. And it was 30 miles to any food or water after that. So the next day wasn't that much fun out there in the desert. But that would be, you know, that was a situation that came up and you just don't, <laughs> you can't plan for that. Yeah. And, and the way that I reacted if I look back on it now, I'm like, what were you thinking? You're lucky he didn't shoot you on spot. Yeah. But for some reason, it just, it, it worked out in that way. And um, then how do you like rebuild from that? How do you find that motivation to keep pushing yourself to say, you know, this is still what I want to do and this is for a good cause and I want to keep going? I never really got that discouraged by it. I had a guy pop a shot over my shoulder. Um, and I think it was just kind of like a shot over the bow, like a warning shot. Um, of course, like I didn't appreciate that. Um, and it was, it was a misunderstanding. Um, you know, in that situation, it was just, I'd stopped at a restaurant and went inside and it was kind of the middle of nowhere and they had all this land. And I went in and said, Hey, listen, I want to buy dinner, but can I camp out back? And they were like, yeah, of course you can sure. Do you want to just go set up your camp and then you come in and have dinner, like wash up and come in and have dinner? And was, that sounds great. And I just got my camp done, like setting it up. And this guy shot right over my shoulder. And uh, he was the owner of the restaurant and no one had told him. And instead of asking me, he decided to shoot first and ask questions later. So 
you know, I explained to him, like, listen, I'm, they told me I could come out here and camp. There was no problem. And he was like, well, no one told me. And I'm like, well, you know, you, you could have asked. So I just packed up and left. That was enough for me. So I had, you know, I had situations like that, but really they didn't discourage me that much. I felt like they were random and they were more based like on individuals, not based on um, communities. Like the community at Hull was more like individuals taking a couple of, making a couple of rash decisions. Um, one thing that has discouraged me is the number of times that I've been stopped by law enforcement during the trip. That has been discouraging at times. And really? Yeah. I. It's because of moving through non-trail communities. And I want to be, you know, as honest as I can here. I've made friends in law enforcement during this trip. There's two that I called just last week just to catch up with them and tell them, you know, ask them like that I was having some issues with being stopped by law enforcement and what should I do or, or how should I act around this? And they were really helpful. Um, so, and I've had law enforcement that just stopped because they were backpackers and they wanted to talk about backpacking, you know? Um, but then I've had others that have come with some heat and then they're taking my ID and running a background check and I'm just sitting on the road. And, you know, when that happens a couple of days in a row, it just really starts to get old. And, yeah, you know, you're asking, you're asking them, can you call ahead or like tell other people like so you can all get on the same page? And I, you know, like I said, I want to be fair here because I've made many friends in law enforcement and there's many supporters of the APT that are in law enforcement. Uh, I, I would say, you know, when I was following the border, like New Mexico, Texas area, I got stopped by Border Patrol all the time. But then I got stopped a lot after that. And I'm really hoping that maybe that won't have to be the legacy of this trip and that that won't have to continue as I continue on. But it has been part of my experience during this journey. I've never had that. Um, I've never had that during any of my other hikes. And I associate that to having to do some road walking and uh, being in non-trail communities. Yeah, people who aren't as understanding that you might have a backpacker out there. And this is why I wonder, like, once you reach the Appalachians, um, I assume that that started winding down and wasn't happening as often because you're in more trail familiar areas and you're in the Appalachians, so you're going to have more hikers naturally. Um, not exactly. So, yeah, I mean, in the Southeast, I had some issues before I hit the Appalachians. Um, you know, one of my stories is that I went into a store and bought, uh, uh, I think I bought a sports drink and um, walked up and to the cashier. This is before COVID. And um, this was in Louisiana, I think. And I talked with the cashier. It turned out they were the owner of the convenience store. And we had a really nice conversation. I went outside and sat on a bench and started drinking this sports drink. And a police officer started to come across the parking lot. And I thought he wanted to talk to like the two other guys that were sitting out front there. Um, but then he came towards me and he's like, uh, well, I need to see your ID. And so I gave him my ID and I just sat there and he went and ran a background check on me. And then he came back and he said, okay, you're all good. And I said, well, officer, do you mind if I 
do you mind if I ask what this was all about? And he said, well, <laughs> it's like, I could tell he thought it was kind of ridiculous, but he's like, well, the owner called me and said, there was this guy in here. He was really nice. He just bought a Gatorade or whatever. And uh, we had a conversation for a while and he seems like a really good guy, but he has a backpack and an accent. And I think someone should check in on him. Holy crap. Backpack yes. and an accent. That's backpack, backpack and an accent. Yeah. Were you getting outside like uh, assistance with that too? Getting anything sent to you that you needed so that, that would make uh, the process of picking things up easier for you? Yeah. The way that that worked, like I said, uh, Layla Grace, the coordinator, um, would send those packages. And so she would send me stuff. But if it, if whatever I needed wasn't in that box, I just didn't get it. Wow. And you just had to make do with it. Yeah. I just had to make do with it and maybe try to send her a message during the week and ask if she can send it in the next one. Um, that could be anything. I don't know. Nail clippers, like a battery charger, like, I don't know, like stuff that maybe wouldn't be food items. So if it wasn't in that box, I didn't like go walk into a town. I walked to all my resupplies I mean, I came up with a, this backpacking methodology that I called social isolating instead of social distancing because it was truly isolation during that time. And I just divided it into two different um, practices, um, one being soft or interpersonal skills and one being hard or technical backcountry skills. And the soft skills were things like... Um, uh, the interpersonal skills were like spending weeks alone, um, being able to do self-assessments, which I had to do several times in what I call a hypothermia drill because there wasn't anyone to assess me or to observe me. So I had to do it for myself. Um, and then it was just like, you know, forgo any, like forgo family and friends and like be co completely committed to it because there wasn't any way out. Like there wasn't a safe way to get on a plane at that point in time. and. Uh, then it was just also like understanding um, something about nonviolent uh, communication and speaking with people who are not aware of different trails or backpackers and being able to explain to them, you know, what's going on. And that could be a law enforcement or it could be someone local to the area. And then, uh, you know, other things like, so no hitching, no restaurants. Um, I didn't have shower. I didn't have shower or laundry for probably almost three months. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, no social media. Um, and it's not no social media. It's just that I couldn't charge my phone. So I pretty much just had my phone off all the time. And that comes back to like, when we were talking about navigation and paper maps, you know, like I wasn't able to use my phone for, I wasn't able to use my phone during that time. Most days I could turn it on for a couple minutes. And if there were messages or something, I'd try to answer them real quick. And then I turned it back off. And I really stuck to that because I had to. Um, and then also, like, I didn't have a hot meal for a couple months. Um, so so that was kind of the, like the soft skills. And then the hard skills um, or the technical backcountry skills were more like, you know, know how to use Map and Compass or know how to um, select um water sources using a map. Like, let's say, for instance, something happened to my filter. And it wasn't working or it's clogged or what have you. Being able to locate cleaner water sources on a map 
uh, and utilize those instead of other ones. So just being able to delineate, um, being able to do field repairs. So like repair your gear. There's the two main skill elements for hiking. You have the soft interpersonal skills and then you have the hard backcountry skills. And you know, what's so amazing about this trip that you've done is that you have to take all of these skills and you have to amplify them to a level that you would never have to see with like a through hike of the PCT or the AT because there's so many more elements to it. It's trail navigation, it's off trail navigation, it's route planning, it's going through both trail communities and non-trail communities. And so there's so many other elements that tie into it. I think one thing too that I haven't mentioned is also like the funding. Like I've never had to fund a trip while I was on a trip before. And that's, yeah, that's the other thing. How is this all funded? So it's primarily funded through uh, individual donors. And some of these folks I know, and some of them I do not know. And um, I hope I get to meet uh, many of them in time, the ones that I haven't got to meet. But um, a lot of the money just comes from people who have been following along the trip, some of them from day one. It's really kind of remarkable. I can't say enough, and I have so much gratitude, but a lot of times Layla just puts out over social media that there's a need, and they meet it, and they keep me going. I can't say enough. I, I mean, I will also add that I have several gear sponsors, and uh, you can find all of them on the website if you're interested in like what gear I'm using. Um, so, so, so that helps, especially on a trip like this. It's not, you don't buy gear and then you just hike with that for the through hike. You know, I have to re up. I don't do it all at one time, but by the time I'm done, like I will have re upped gear probably four or five times, maybe more. Like started all over, like new backpack, new bag, new everything. Well, because how many miles have you done? Uh, I'm, it's a guess, it's an approximation. I'm guessing like 8,000 or so. But it's only a guess. I haven't sat down to figure it out um, because it just doesn't It doesn't really matter to me. Now, when it's done and I'm doing more planning and scouting, and I'll have to continue to do more scouting when I'm done with this trip, um, I may even have to spend the next year doing that. But um, I'll be a little more specific about mileage. But from day to day... I often don't even check. I just know that I'm waking up early and I'm walking all day. And then when it gets dark, I'm going to sleep. So I typically don't even check because I just know that I'm walking all day every day. So it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Where are you in the blazing process? I'm basically in like, it's kind of South Western Michigan, and I am going to be using some of the North Country Trail through Michigan, and I at times will not be using the North Country Trail. Uh, so I get to, you know, I make decisions there based on what I'm seeing in front of me. The North Country Trail still has a lot of uh, roadwalks. Um, I'll find another track that's like a single dirt track somewhere and use that as opposed to the official north country trail and that's like i said that's really good information for me to have going forward what do you um suspect your timeline's going to be for ultimately pushing your way west and uh ultimately arriving back in bend 
Yeah, I mean, I have to get back there. I mean, the snow will probably be flying, I'm guessing, some. It's unavoidable. I'm going to be at high elevation for a couple thousand miles. So um, I imagine I'm going to see some winter conditions. But really, I guess um, I need to be back in the next three or four months to give myself a real shot at it. I have a couple tricks up my sleeve, like things that I can do differently, because I'm not dedicated to using the Pacific Crest Trail to get home. Um, there's other routes through there and I may use those anyways, just for my own information, because I've already, that section of the PCT, I've already hiked through twice. So it's not real informative for the long-term project. Well, the point is though, you've got so many options that you've given yourself. Like you don't feel yourself constrained to a specific area. You can basically create the path that you think is appropriate. It's always, yeah, it's, it's been that way the entire trip. Um, I always intended it to be that way. And so, um, it's like, people are like, do you ever get lost or go the wrong way? And I've had to backtrack, but a lot of the times, like I don't bother cause I'm not wrong. Like as long as I'm heading in the right direction, like, I'm on track. You know, I know whatever way you go, it's it's going to work out very well. And I know you're going to do great with it. But, um, you know, in, in the meantime, I really just want to say thank you so much for taking some time to sit down with us today. And, of course, we're going to wish you the absolute best in completing the American Perimeter Trail. But I always like to wrap these up by asking uh, a few quick, fun questions for you. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pop quiz, the lightning round here. Um First one, what's your luxury item that you hike with? Oh, okay. Um, I guess it's a luxury, but I think over the years, it's I've found it to be more of a necessity, and that is a heart, um, an open heart, an open heart to the experience that's in front of you, um, one that isn't judging it in a way of saying it, it should be other than it is. It shouldn't be this way. I want it to be another way. I want it to be different, but an open heart that has the experience in front of it and is open enough to say, this is the time right now. This, this is it. There's no past and there's no future. Um, and I mean, maybe I think an open heart, uh, not just a heart, but an open heart. I think that is a luxury item because I haven't had the luxury of having that my entire life. Holy crap, man. I wish I'd asked that question last. You nailed that one. That's the winner right there. <laughs> All right. I guess I'll ask the next question. <laughs> See if you can make this one as good. Uh, what's the, what is the best trail magic you've ever gotten? Mm, the best trail magic. Oh, okay. So I, um, I was backpacking once and it was summertime it's very hot, and I had taken my shirt off, and I had my shirt off all day. And I had put my shirt somewhere. I, I, I don't know where. I, I don't know where I laid it. It just it was gone. And I needed to resupply that day, and I needed to hitch into a town to resupply. And I thought to myself, like, no one's going to pick me up. Uh, you know, I got a big beard and long hair. And I'm not wearing a shirt, you know, like no one's going to pick me up. And even if they do pick me up and take me into town, I can't go into the store because I don't have a shirt on. 
and another backpacker came past me and was like, Hey, what are you doing? You know, they were going on. And I was like, yeah, oh man, did you see a shirt back there? They're like, no, we would have seen it. No, we didn't see it. It must be way back there. We didn't see it. I'm like, well, I have to go into town. I don't have a shirt. And the um, backpacker uh, took the, you know, literally took the shirt off of his back and gave it to me. (laughs) And then I never saw him again. And he walked on and he literally gave me the shirt off of his back so that I could go in and resupply. I, I got to tell you, Rude, these are the best answers we have gotten to the lightning round questions. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> I like that one. All right. Next question. Who's your inspiration? Who inspires you? Oh, um, the Buddha. <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ. Um, Muhammad. Um, you know, um, children, all children, uh, especially children with uh, special needs. Uh, you know, especially um, children with autism, Asperger's, such a interesting and pure and honest perspective. You know, I, I want to be more like them in some ways. I, I get into fear and then I'm not honest, you know. Sometimes afraid to speak my mind and say what I truly believe and I truly feel because I'm trying to protect my psyche or I'm afraid of backlash. You know, I want to have that kind of courage. You know, Martin Luther King. You know, these these people. That's who. That's who I look to for inspiration. People that are. You know, I've been a coward many times in my life, and um, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, I. I I want to go forth with, with love and with courage. Mm-hmm. Right on, ma'am. Yeah. Right on. Uh, I, I don't even want to ask this next question. I don't even wrote it down because the, the question was going to be, do you love pineapples on pizza? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know. <laughs> Give me a tear jerking response to that one. I'm sure. You know I mean. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so when I got to Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> I wanted to do some um, Zoom sessions with people that had been following me, just give them an opportunity to like catch up and, and talk some, and uh, they could ask me any questions they wanted to about whatever. So uh, the one gentleman I was talking to, he through hiked the Appalachian Trail, and he told me that every time he would go into town, he would like eat a large pizza. And I was like, oh, man, I haven't had pizza um, in like four or five months. And he was like, are you insane? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, hey, listen, when COVID started, I just for went hot meals because I couldn't resupply fuel. Um, so I haven't had hot meals and I haven't had any pizza. So I would imagine at this point in time, you could put just about anything on a pizza. And it would be absolutely the best pizza I've ever had. And pineapple would do just fine. That's a true. That's a through hiker answer right there. <laughs> Last question. In what way can myself, all of us with the Out and Back podcast, anyone listening, how can we help out with the completion of this project? Thank you so very much for that question. And I want to be honest here that I don't think that this is 
necessarily something that's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, I'm happy to be the catalyst and I'm happy to start this and to get some trail on the ground. But like, as we were speaking earlier, even the Appalachian trail isn't changes, you know, it changes every year. And one of the people, like one of the books I used to read, um, like the essential backpacker by Colin Fletcher. And he also wrote a book called, uh, the man who walked through time, which was like about like one of the first hikes through the grand Canyon. And, um, you know, I remember, um, him saying that, uh, life should be an unfinished business. <laughs> and so for those who want to help support me through this hike, um, we'll be forming an organization when I get done. So that's, it's going to look different, but for the time being, uh, folks can find me on social media. Um, they can go to the Facebook page, which is American Perimeter Trail Project, and uh, also on Instagram or my personal Instagram, which is just Rue McHenrick. It's just my name. And if you Google me, you'll find the website, which is www.americanperimetertrailproject.weebly.com. And on Facebook or on the website or even on GoFundMe, you can make contributions there. But I also understand that there's many people who make other contributions that aren't monetary. And sometimes that's just like sending me a message or some um, support or, uh, you know, it can be anything like that, just acknowledging me or what I'm going through and just kind of like a that a boy, like keep going. Um, so monetarily wise, there's a couple of different ways of doing that. And then also Layla Grace, the coordinator, set up an Amazon wish list, which is how I get a lot of my supplies. And that is also on the American Perimeter Trail Project Facebook page. It's at the top. And so you can look on there if there's something that you would like um, to send me. And it'll get sent to her. And then she makes my resupply boxes every week. So she'll send it along to me and make sure I get it. We are just so amazed at what you've been able to do. And we find it inspiring. And we wish you the absolute best as you continue on your way with this. And just thanks for taking so much time to talk with us today. This is my pleasure, Shanti. All right. You take care, Ru. We'll talk soon. Okay. How can you not love that guy? Rumi Kendrick, you are a freaking amazing person and congrats to you on everything you've been able to achieve so far. We thank you for being on the show and we wish you the absolute best as you continue onward with the APT. You can follow Rue by going to www.americanperimetertrailproject.com, which has a ton of great stuff. On the site, Rue provides continual updates through a blog. There's a store with really cool APT gear. There's details on the APT project itself. And of course, there's a place where you can personally contribute to the project, either directly through the website, through a link on the website to Rue's GoFundMe, or through a link on the website to Rue's Amazon wishlist, where you can provide him with the supplies he needs, including food, clothing, and more. Again, that's www.americanperimetertrailproject.com. In addition to all that, you can follow Rue on Instagram at Rue McKenrick, or by checking out American Perimeter Trail Project on Facebook. We'll make sure to leave links to all these places on our show notes, which you can find by going to the Gaia GPS blog. Coming up on next week's episode, we're going to talk about what I think is the number one subject on the minds of all backcountry explorers and adventurers when they're out and about in the wild. Food. Specifically, we're going to be talking with Aaron Owens Mayhew, who is the host of the popular website and blog, Backcountry Foodie. 
Aaron is a registered dietitian and ultralight long-distance backpacker who helps backpackers and all backcountry explorers meal plan with ease so that we can all spend less time, money, and effort meal planning for our next adventures. So you got to make sure to tune into that episode next week so that you can learn on your next trip how to have a pack of food that's lighter, cheaper, and more fulfilling than you've ever had before. Two quick reminders before we go. Gaia GPS, the gold standard app for backcountry navigation, is offering up to a 50% discount on memberships to podcast listeners. Visit GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, that's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast, to claim this great deal. And finally, if you like today's episode, please let us know. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure to share it on social media and with your friends. It helps the show get noticed and it keeps us going. So for now, this is Shanti, and we'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care, everyone. Take care.